The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back. Okay, so here we start our final week. Uh, this has been, uh, this, this, I just wanted to say before we started tonight, this class has been uh, an enormous amount of fun for me. I've been really enjoying uh, our time together. It's gone by really fast, though. I have to get used to this whole short class thing. Um, so uh, I, I was sort of, you know, I, ha I kind of did a double take yesterday, realizing, wow, this is, uh, it's almost done. This is the last week of the class. So anyway, it's been uh, a lot of fun. I was glad you guys could join me. Um, so, uh, yes, just how I feel the same way. It's unbelievable. Um, anyway, so, um, I do, before I start tonight, one, uh, quick, uh, I mentioned this in my MythCard class last night, but I wanted to just explain, if you can pick it up, because I think it is sometimes audible, um, a new addition to our household, uh, in the room in which I broadcast here, right behind my screen, behind me, uh, resides my nine-year-old son's new hamster, whose name is Harry the Hamster, named after Harry Potter, I have to admit. And um, he, uh, you might possibly hear him running in his wheel or something <laughs> during class. So if you, uh, if you hear some strange kind of rattling noise in the background, it's Harry the Hamster that you're hearing. So I, I think he shouldn't be too disruptive, but... Uh, but in case you're you're wondering, oh, and thanks, Eric. My shoulder is a little bit better today. I think uh, I I had that was another thing I said in my class last night. I actually uh, sustained a, an injury to fell on my shoulder uh, yesterday. I, last night was uh, in a fair bit of pain during my Mythgard class last night. It was because only a couple hours before class that it happened. Um, it's um, it's definitely it's definitely better. Um, so that's good news because I think it means it's not very seriously injured. But anyway. Um, so yeah, I still have to be careful with my... I, I can do mostly two-handed gesticulations tonight, so I think I shan't injure myself by gesticulating, which I actually did, <laughs> did do last night. But uh, anyway, um, I think I should be okay. Um, let's see. Uh, yes, uh, Jeff, the webinar for tomorrow is made available right now. I just did that about five minutes ago, so um, so that should be that should be all set. Um, yeah, good, good. Sharon, I agree. I have really enjoyed this. Um, I have been delighted at uh, uh, sort of the, the, you know, actually executing the plan that I had made to study the less, as you say, the less studied portions of the book. Um, this has been tremendous fun. You know, not only, you know, as I said last time, uh, my delight at getting a chance to actually sit down and look at the development of the A. Arendel poem as we did last time, which I've always wanted to do. Um, but also, you know, the stuff we're going to be, most of the stuff anyway, that we're going to be looking at today. Again, stuff that we almost never got to um, in any class I've ever taught on Tolkien before. Um, I want to, tonight we're going to look at uh, Karathras, the mountain, their attempt to cross Karathras, and in particular, the way that the mountain itself is characterized. And then secondly, I want to be looking at, I guess, what I will call sort of their encounter with dwarfdom in general. Because, um, of course, it's quite noticeable that we get these two sort of major encounters on their journey here. Um, first, they encounter, uh, they go through Moria and they have their encounters with, with dwarfdom and we get this sort of exposure to the dwarf world. And then, of course, they go from there to Lothlorien and, uh, you know, the heart of Elvendom on Earth, uh, as we're told, at least in Aragorn's unbiased opinion. Uh, well, no, it's, it's not Aragorn's opinion. See here, I'm, I'm like mixing my uh, my things. Anyway, the, 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 the elves believe. It is the heart of Elvendom on Earth. So anyway, um, 
and then of course we begin to get down towards down towards the lunadine um, as we will you know as we spend more time there especially in the return of the king but um, but anyway so I want to look at the dwarf stuff uh, tonight I want to look at at the 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 stuff we uh, we learn about Durin and in particular Gimli's song about Durin we're gonna do some more poetry today because I had so much fun last time um, and I want to talk about Balin some and Gimli and the, their effects on the story uh, then I would like to I hope to get to Nimrodel um, we won't get quite so far as uh, as Lothlorien, of course. I'm going to save Lothlorien and Galadriel for tomorrow night, for next time, uh, for our last session. Um, but I, I would like to get to uh, a, a little discussion of Nimrodel. We're not going to look at the whole poem in detail, um, but I would really like to sort of examine that episode, because I think it's another moment which is given quite some prominence by the length of its song, um, and yet is really easy to skip over. In between, however, we are going to spend some time with a passage that I often spend time on, but I just cannot resist spending time on it, and that is the Bridge of Khazad Doom. And we're going to look at uh, Gandalf's confrontation with the Balrog, um, though in a good deal more detail than I usually get to do. So, that's the plan for tonight. Um, let's see. Uh, okay. Um, okay. Uh, good. So let's talk about let's talk about uh, Karathras. Um, and actually, I would bring this up, um, Erica, right before class, I got your email that you sent this afternoon. Um, Erica was sort of talking about, or sort of wanting to talk about the, uh, the sort of the animal culture that we see. I mean, we get these glimpses into talking animals in Tolkien's world, and um, she was pointing in particular to a passage which I agree with her, and I find a very striking one, when... Um, when Pippin is asking, um, when Pippin is asking Aragorn where he learned the lore that he has, um, where he heard these stories, um, he, uh, Pippin says the birds and beasts don't uh, tell such tales. And Aragorn says that's a really weird uh, moment. That's a really weird thing for Pippin to say. Um, what uh, what does he mean by like, what kind of tales do they tell and how does Pippin know um, it's a really good question um, you know I think and it is a little bit unlike Pippin um, uh, that is I, I don't, you know, we wouldn't necessarily expect that uh, in um, that you know of the four hobbits he would be the one to deliver that line if anybody's gonna um, but but I guess the, 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 what I do with that, I mean, sort of my answer to your question, Erica, is we don't really know all that much. Um, that is, we, we I, you know, I, don't, I doubt, um, I don't think Pippin is speaking from experience there. You know, I, I don't think that the subtext of that question is, because I've talked to a lot of animals, you know, birds and beasts, and I've heard, a, you know, I've heard a whole bunch of stories from them, and, and trust me, like, they don't tell stories like that. I don't think so. I think that he's... Um, how I understand that that question is basically as a reference from Pippin to, you know, Aragorn's rangerly nature. That is, how he's been injured. They know that he is a ranger from the wilderness, and they don't know anything about the rangers. I mean, remember you remember Frodo's comment. You know, I thought he was only a ranger, right? Um, and so even Frodo, who is the most well-educated of any of them doesn't understand what it means for them to for them to be a ranger. Of course, if they did, if they knew that the rangers were the last of the Dunedain, 
they wouldn't be surprised that they have all this lore handed down from ancient days. Um, but they don't know that. What they know is that they're rangers, and that seems to mean like you know one of those wilderness people, one of those you know one of those guys who who is out there roaming the wilderness. So basically, Pippin would expect um, that he would be things that you know. So in in the category of stuff, Pippin would expect from a ranger would be intimate familiarity with birds and beasts and the land and 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 all that stuff. So you know. Aragorn coming in and saying, like, I have found this healing herb that grows wild. Like, okay, like, ranger thing, right? That would at least seem like a ranger thing to him. Um, though, of course, we know it to be tied to the Numenorean thing. But anyway, it would, it would, that would seem like a ranger thing. Um, him being able to say, I know these forests really well, and I can find you paths that, you know, no, you know and Bill Fernie is no match for me in the woods. That's, like, again, stuff that I think that Pippin would expect. But he doesn't expect, you know, how does he have all this elven lore? Um, so, so that's my understanding of what Pippin actually means by that. But Erica, that's not to say that I sort of discount what you're pointing to in sort of the overall sense that you know there are stories that be that uh, birds and beasts have to say, and you know things that they things that they could contribute, even if the hobbits don't necessarily listen to them anymore. Um, and I think, you know, I wanted to bring it up because I actually think it sort of is a very appropriate transition into what I want to be looking at uh, with the mountain um, Karathras. Yeah, exactly, Jeff. As you say, he couldn't have gotten that knowledge from the land. No matter how intimately he knows the, the, the woods, he can't. There's, there's no way that he's going to come out of it with, like, the story of, of uh, you know, the Battle of the Last Alliance and, um, you know, the legend of Baron and Luthien and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, 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 good, good. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> they suggest that Pippin's knowledge of rangers is clearly based on playing Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I'm not quite sure that that's the direction it goes. Uh, of course, the ranger uh, character class is one of the like most obvious Tolkienisms uh, in the original D&D setup. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, but yeah, yeah. Uh, no, Sharon, exactly. He's um, he is uh, Pippin is definitely appealing to stereotypes. You know, that's the way that um, you know, it's the way that they were introduced, and he is clearly being prompted. And we, we see this too. I mean, we see this even within the Shire. Pippin and Mary themselves, and Frodo seem to be not Sam, but Pippin, Mary, and Frodo seem to have sort of stepped outside the. Well, you know, everybody, all of the normal people here in Hobbiton recognize that those people from Buckland are queer in these ways. And, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the stuff that we see expressed by Gaffer Gamgee and still kind of held on to by Sam, um, they are more sort of cosmopolitan than that, but they still have assumptions about things outside the Shire and about men. Uh, and so we see them sort of fitting into... Um, the kinds of assumptions that clearly the Brelanders make about the Rangers very easily. Um, yeah, now I agree, Sarah. You can tell a story without saying it, and it could well be that one could one could say, in some senses, that Rangers do know, you know, have heard tales from birds and beasts. Um, but uh, yeah, just not that, uh, just not that story. Um, yeah, good. Um, now, David, exactly. See that, and that's one of the points that Erica was making in her email to me. 
it's not just like it's not just a reference to being close to the land. I mean, it, you might simply dismiss Pippin's words there. One could dismiss his words as mere, um, you know, sort of metaphor, right? Like, well, obviously, no one's actually heard stories from the birds and beasts, so he must be talking about some kind of close familiarity with birds and beasts. But David, as you say, we actually do see talking animals enough in Tolkien to make us pause, at least, when thinking about that. As you know, David points out, we've got, of course, the thrush in The Hobbit. Um, we have the, 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 the Krabine, who are spying for Saruman, probably. Um, so that's, you know, we, we do have evidence of that kind of thing. We are told that, you know, we're told later in uh, his, uh, in his um, Frodo's Gandalf eulogy song, that um, that Gandalf could speak to birds and beasts too. So, and of course we have the eagle, um, you know, Gwahir. So th there's there's and not to mention Bjorn. Lots of you know reference to that kind of thing, and even that uh, you know, as Erica says, the infamous talking or thinking fox in chapter three in Three is Company does suggest that kind of a, a sort of a lively internal life on the part of the fox. Um, the fox never hears more about their story, but seems at least a little bit interested in their story, right? I mean, you get the sense that if the communication barrier could be bridged, the fox and the hobbits would have something to talk about. Um, so, so yeah, that does seem to me an important part of the thing. Right, very good. Yeah, Caden was just thinking of the Gandalf eulogy, right, as I was saying it. Very good. Um, yeah, right, and as Trish points out, we've got Huan. Um, Erica was, was referring to Huan in her... Uh, in her um, email as well. Um, yeah, very good. So I mean, and again, I think that that's. Um, I think that that is. There is evidence for in for from even if just from that kind of collection of special cases, um, special cases being the magical thrush um, is from a from an old and magical breed. We're told the ravens, of course. The you know Bjorn the eagles, uh, you know there, there there are lots of other examples, but again they still seem to be at least potentially exceptional. Um, but nevertheless, they do suggest that there is this this other culture out there um, that one could connect to. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Robert suggests that the fox was prophesied to think but thrice with the words of men. <laughs> Quite possibly, Robert. Quite possibly. Um, good. Now, I, from here, I want to sort of segue to what I think is, in some ways, one of the strangest and most um, kind of provocative moments of this kind of thing. And by this kind of thing, I mean encounters with some other sort of natural being or force which is not human, or elf or dwarf. Um, and that's their attempt to cross the mountain of Karathras. Uh, this is one of the moments, by the way, that, uh, that you know, I've, I've talked before about how, uh, how uh, probably unpleasant it will be uh, to watch the Hobbit movie with me when it finally comes out. Um, that I, I hope that it would be awesome to be able to arrange some kind of uh, special event or something. It would be really cool if uh, 
you know, you get a bunch of people together and descend upon a movie theater or something or reserve something. Because honestly, like if 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 I if I see in like general population, I'm going to be just so annoying to everybody around us. But one way in which I was annoying in watching the Peter Jackson films is there are several moments when I just sort of when I, when I just couldn't help myself, I just laughed out loud at what must have seemed completely inappropriate moments uh, to people who were watching the movie for the first time, and I. Um, I um, <laughs> so and this was one when they were trying to cross Karathras and the snow is coming, and uh, they have they take that line they adapt that line from the book about the fell voices on the wind, right? Um, and there are fell voices on the wind, and then Gandalf says it's Saruman. I just I I cracked up. I laughed out loud. And like everybody was staring at me, like I don't, I don't understand why that's funny. Um, that was hysterical. I mean, just hysterical. Uh, and I mean, I found it funny in so many ways. Um, but, but here's the thing: like, I, I don't want to simply mock it. I, I mean, I, I can see the function of it within the context of the story that they were telling in the film. Uh, you know, they obviously wanted to establish the power of Saruman and, you know, and to set up the confrontation between him and Gandalf because we get this sort of distance confrontation between him and Gandalf. Um, but most obviously of all, the filmmakers were clearly unsatisfied with trying to depict uh, the storm the way it is, it is depicted in the book. And frankly, I agree with them. I do not think it would have translated well at all onto film. I think it would have been very confusing, as indeed I have known it to confuse people who read the books. Um, it still works better in the book form than it would in the film form. But basically, if, it can, if they depicted it as it is in the book, the question, the, the question audiences would very naturally be asking is, who, who's making it snow? Why? What, what, who is attacking them? They're being attacked, right? It's not just a coincidence. And because it seems pretty clear that it's not a coincidence, um, what is going on here exactly? Uh, and so they 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 give us a visible antagonist. You know, we get uh, we get Saruman in my favorite Saruman uh, visual moment in the films. That uh, that picture of 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 Christopher Lee. With his staff standing on the top of Orthanc, you know, holding his hands out like this, with the wind blowing behind him, he looks awesome in that picture. Um, anyway, so you know, okay, so we get this picture. Okay, here is the antagonist. Here is the enemy. They're attacking. They're attaching it to Saruman because of, because of the Krabine. Again, it it you know it makes a kind of sense, um, but anyway, but it's very different from the book, obviously. Um, so let's look at. But there are a couple passive, you know, a couple. There, there's some other references, of course, that I haven't put up, uh, you know, on our slides for you here tonight. But, but here's a passage that sort of points to some of the stuff that I'm talking about uh, to kind of give us a point of entry into this question. And my question, which is a pretty vague and not very good question, is just what's happening here? How do we understand this? So, okay, they passed through the lane. That's, uh, you know, this is when that when uh, you know Boromir has like burrowed his way through the snow. They passed through the lane, but hardly had Frodo touched the ground when, with a deep rumble, there rolled down a fall of stones and slithering snow. The spray of it half blinded the company as they crouched against the cliff, and when the air cleared again, they saw that the path was blocked behind them. Enough! Enough! cried Gimli. We are departing as quickly as we may. And indeed, with that last stroke, the malice of the mountain seemed to be expended, 
as if Karathras were satisfied that the invaders had been beaten off and would not dare to return. The threat of snow lifted. The clouds began to break and the light grow bro grew broader. And of course, uh, the chapter ends with one of my favorite chapter endings uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring. Karathras had defeated them. Um, okay, Karathras had defeated them. What does that mean? Who defeated them? Why did that individual defeat them? Is, are, we, are we supposed to understand this simply metaphorically? Is Gimli being sort of superstitious? What's happening here? How, how do you think... Now, and again, this is, this is you know, I, it's, we have to be careful here. You know, I want to try to base this as carefully as we can on the evidence that we get from the story, but how do we understand this? I think it's really, I think it's really difficult. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Giselle, it would be really hard to depict a sentient mountain on film. I mean, how would you do that? Uh, you could have them talk about it, but but even then, there's there would be no. I mean, it's it does it's it's a concept. The concept that the mountain is fighting against them in some sense um, can be conveyed in the book. It's hard to convey that. In fact, I mean, you could have the characters talk about it, but. What, what are you going to show? I mean, you can't show an enemy, um, and it's 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 how, when you have to translate it visually. It's 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 very difficult. Um, and I agree, Timothy. We do we can see in there. I think also a uh, um, a, a a general trend towards trying to rationalize things in the books and not leaving things as mysterious. Though again, it's another thing that I think works much better uh, in print than on film. That you know the the kind of yeah, leaving things mysterious and unexplained. Um, you can't, it's not that you can't do that on film, but it's harder, I think. Uh, harder to do and still have your story working really well. Um, there are some ways in which, as a storytelling, um, as a storytelling vehicle, film is much more limited uh, than print. I mean, it just it is. There are some other things that you can do very well on film. There are some things which just are very difficult to do, and I do think that that's one of them. Um, okay, good. Mike asks a good question. What exactly does this mountain have against the Fellowship? If we are to understand that it is, in fact, this mountain opposing them in some kind of concrete sense, um, how and why are two very good questions about this. Um, and I agree. Nate um, points out very rightly that Gimli, more than anybody else, is the one who describes Karathras as a living thing. Um, and also, Nate points out that as a dwarf, he might have more of a sense of what rock or earth can do, and and, and that I think is doubly true, right? Not only is a dwarf more likely to be sort of generally uh, familiar with and in tune with what rock and mountain can accomplish, but also, you know, Karathras is one of the mountains of Moria. I mean, it's one of the big three that you know he lovingly names. Um, in uh, his little, you know, uh, when he says his piece, as uh, as uh, Sam says, um, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, it, it, he's he's one of the mountains of Moria. So again, they, he Gimli will have you know sort of legends and lore handed down to him about Karathras that the others would not. Um, so I agree for this reason. I don't think that this means that we must accept everything that Gimli says about it as the correct answer, but it, he certainly bears listening to. 
Um, and sometimes people dismiss, um, you know, might be inclined to sort of dismiss what Gimli says, like, oh, you know, that's a little out there, Gimli. But again, I think Nate's right. We have reason to take it seriously. Um, yeah, Giselle, exactly. It does seem that the mountain thinks. Like, how? Why? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, good. As Nate says, uh, as you know, Legolas understands trees, and Gimli understands the earth and the mountain. Yes, that does that does make sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good. You guys are doing are doing um, some good. Um, you guys are pointing out some some good observations that I want to bring together here. Dime says Aragorn points out that there are there are unknown things that don't much like people, right? You know that that, that are not allied with Sauron. Um, yes, so we have we we are told, and this is this is a thing which is really um, which is really important to remember as we go through the Lord of the Rings, um, and is something which um, you know which uh, again tends to get kind of left behind in the film. Again, I think for very understandable reasons, is that you know not everything is you know operating under either the command of Mordor or Saruman. That is, there are things, there are enemies which. Um, are not necessarily under anybody's allegiance, um, you know, are not part of the plan and the scheme against the good guys. Um, in other words, it's more than just a binary situation. You don't just have like the team of good guys and the team of bad guys going up against each other. Um, Tolkien's world is much bigger than that. You know, there are lots of creatures in it, um, big and small, strange and even stranger, ancient and new, and they you know, they make their own choices. Um, some of them are good, and some of them are not, and some of them, um, you know, ha are, pay no attention. So, so I think that that's um, th that's a very important thing to remember. You know, Mike Mike points out that uh, he Karathras is a male, which is I I agree an important thing. He is personified um, persistently, at least to that extent. He is given that kind of a character. Is, and that he does not love elves and dwarves. Um, why not? Why not? What does he have against them? Good, Mike is following that up too. What do the elves do? What's the gripe? Uh, the old forest, he points out, hates hobbits because of the burning of the forest to build the hedge. Um, we don't get any clue of the backstory here. Um, the dwarves have, you know, tunneled beneath Karathras. Moria is built beneath Karathras. Is that part of the grunge? The only thing that we know about elves and dwarves in this region is the kingdom that they used to have, the elven kingdom of Holland, uh, and the uh, you know the neighboring dwarf realm of Khazad-dûm, neither of which still exist. That's the only kind of context that we're given when he says that he doesn't love elves and dwarves. Um, it's, and it's interesting, I think, that he points to those specifically. He doesn't say that elves, dwarves, men. He doesn't really hate that everybody. You know, it's just a completely you know, like misanthropic mountain. Um, the reference to elves and dwarves does seem to suggest that it's, you know, there's some, like the Holland uh, Khazad-dûm thing, um, Karathras wasn't a fan. I don't know why. I mean, again, it's held out as a really good thing, right? This was a time of, of cooperation and friendship between elves and dwarves, such as has never been and um, has never been elsewhere. And, you know, and this was all, those were happier days, right? Um, well, apparently not for Karathras, he's still really grumpy about it. Um, 
Yeah, as Sharon says, he has an ancient reputation of cruelty. He was called the cruel. I um, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, very good. Uh, Sarah has given the whole quotation, which is which, thank you for that, Sarah. Ah, it is as I said, growled Gimli. It was no ordinary storm. It is the ill will of Karathras. He does not love elves and dwarves, and that drift was laid to cut off our escape. Um, now, there is a chance that there is some other, that it is not just the mountain Karathras acting independently, but there is some outside power. It is not Sauron, and that is, I think, quite clear. Um, I just don't. I just do not believe that Saruman has the power to do that to call down storm upon the mountains. You remember they debate like you know has Sauron's arm has grown long indeed if he can you know uh, call storms to trouble us all these hundreds of leagues away. Well, his arm has grown long. It's an open question as to whether or not you know Sauron could actually do that. Um, whether that Saruman could do that, I don't think. Um, I quite frankly doubt that. Um, Caden suggests it could be the Balrog. We do have another creature of power living around. He's right nearby. His arm doesn't have, wouldn't, wouldn't even have to be all that very long. Um, we don't have any kind of positive evidence of that. Um, uh, there's no hint when Gandalf finds out that there is this powerful creature there and then finds out that, of course, we don't get, he doesn't get too much chance to talk about it after he learns that it's a Balrog, but... Um, but still, he makes no reference to the fact that that might have been it. I mean, I don't see, I can't see any positive evidence to suggest that the Balrog could have been involved. Again, it's sort of theoretically possible, but also that doesn't seem like the Balrog's kind of M.O. Um, uh, and what's more, he doesn't really seem to be interested in them. Um, that is, he's interested when they invade his place, but he doesn't seem to be interested otherwise. Um, and he's just like the fact that the Balrog has never come out, um, has never done anything, has it never seems to have interacted with the outside world in any way, as long as people stay out of Moria, ever since the Balrog took over. So for that reason, I have a hard time thinking that uh, the Balrog was involved. Um, yeah, good. Let's see. Um, Sorry, I'm missing some of the things that I wanted to point to. Um, yes, there are powers older than orcs in the dark places of the world, Liza's quoting good. Um, yeah, as Liza points out, many things to which we would not ordinarily assign consciousness or spirit have a sort of consciousness and will in Tolkien's writings. Um, places, um, she says, she points to Holland, for instance, which has a wholesomeness um, you know, forests which have a character like the old forest in the mountains. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the way that Treebeard talks about his forest. Now, of course, there's a difference there because they're living things, right? But, um, but yeah, I mean, they talk about, you know, the stones. Uh, Legolas speaks of the stones remembering the elves of Holland who lived there, um, which, which implies a kind of, a kind of awareness. Um, and, yes, Robert, I do take the Karathra scene to be a kind of a remnant of the stone giants from The Hobbit. Um, I think that Tolkien has made a very conscious step in that direction. We get stone giants, um, you know, throwing rocks around, kind of like, um, kind of like the giants that we see throwing rocks around um, on the path um, 
that the that Potagorm and the children take in the silver chair up into the northern wastes. Um, that is, they're just they're just giants, you know, large, ugly creatures throwing rocks around. Um, the stone giants disappear. We get no whiff of the stone giants in the Lord of the Rings, and it seems to be one of those things which Tolkien has moved away from as he has as his idea of Middle Earth has sort of continued to develop and mature in the 17 years since he wrote The Hobbit. Um, and it does seem that one of the choices he made was to take out the stone giants, and instead to kind of take the danger that the, that Gandalf and the dwarves and Bilbo encountered in the High Pass um, the first time, which was presumably the same pass. I mean, it was presumably Redhorn Gate, though it was not named that. It wasn't conceived of in that way. Um, but again, it was presumably that same pass that they were that they were trying to cross in the Hobbit. Um, and, and, and he, he sort of takes that and shifts that, shifts it away from the more kind of traditional fairy tale giants um, that we see in The Hobbit and to something stranger, to something more mysterious, um, but which does fit, as Liza has pointed out and Sarah has pointed out, um, with this kind of atmosphere that he, which really does permeate Middle-earth, the sense that all things... That, that even in stones and mountains, there is a kind of life, there is a kind of spirit, and that all of them have a kind of an awareness and memory. Um, and uh, and Karathras is one of the most pointed and peculiar examples of that. Because you know, as I've said, the old forest, yeah, the old forest has an attitude, but there at least you have individual living things you can point to. Um, which, you know, trees, which don't have consciousness in the way that we would know. But again, to, 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 to imagine um, the experience and consciousness of a tree isn't such a big leap, not as big a leap as imagining the consciousness of a mountain. Um, but, but again, it's, it's sort of the next, the next step that we see there. Um, yeah. Oh, good. Let's see. It's, there are several... Uh, um, there are several, a whole bunch of comments you guys have have uh, have made, which I want to sort of go through here. You know, Timothy, that's a really interesting idea. Timothy wonders, you know, does the mountain resent the mobility of the elves and dwarves? Um, I, you know, again, I think of the words said about the old forest. Or the, you know, the narrator relates the impressions that they get from Tom Bombadil's talk about, um, you know, how they how the trees resent. Um, you know, they remember the times when they were lords and they resent the things that go around on two legs, hacking and burning and taking over their land. Um, now again, obviously the relationship is different. You know, there, is a, there, are, there are grievances to be, that, that are being remembered there, which has Karathras been injured? Does he not like being tunneled under? Maybe he doesn't like being tunneled under. Um, but, but yeah, one wonders, is it just simply a kind of xenophobia on the part of the mountain? Um, you know, that it doesn't hold with these little two-legged creatures that wander around. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, it would, uh, you know, as Dima asks, did the dwarves harm the mountain? I mean, would it have thought of it in that way? Um, yeah, and Erica was asking the same question. Does it take offense at being hacked into? It's possible. It's possible. Uh, again, we're not told. We're never introduced to Karathras, the character, right? We're never given any of its mentality. All we have is this kind of hostility, this hostility which aligns with 
the their enemies, right? Their enemies would want them to be thwarted in their attempts to cross the Misty Mountains. Um, but um, but that does seem to be, in a sense, coincidental. Um, that is to say, I I, I if, you know, and this is this sort of just gets into personal opinion because there is so little evidence to be um, uh, to be to, to be adduced for this. But um, I don't think it was Sauron who caused the storm. I think it's just Karalthas. I mean, I think that it's what what Tolkien is doing here is showing us one of those one of those other um, uh, one of those other creatures. Is you know, that he wants us to be aware of sort of this element in uh, in in the world. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, Nate, Nate asks a good question. He says, according to Morgoth's ring, um, which is material which was written after the Lord of the Rings, um, Morgoth's true power was embedded in the earth itself. Could this be a remnant of that evil? Not a conscious being acting out, but sort of like the darkness in Old Man Willow. The Old Man Willow is conscious, I think. But, um, but anyway, yeah. This is tricky. And the reason I'm pausing is, you know, for reasons as I've said before, I'm always cautious uh, in applying Silmarillion stuff uh, to the Lord of the Rings, or at least I want to do it consciously. Um, it is so dangerous when talking about Tolkien to address everything he wrote as if everything he ever wrote always existed, you know, as if there is this unified vision of Tolkien's work that is out there, which is the sort of the sum total of his writings. Because that was not the, I mean, his ideas were under, were just, were in flux over time. We can see his ideas developing. Um, and of course, as I've said before, the Silmarillion stuff was unpublished and inaccessible, and he knew that. So when he wrote The Lord of the Rings, yes, he had all of that stuff that he had written, you know, all the Silmarillion material he had written, he knew it all, and he had that stuff in his head. And looking at it, we can um, we can understand better some of the references that are made in the Lord of the Rings. But at the same time, um, I res I am very resistant to saying there are things that we can only understand properly by reading the Silmarillion, because he would not have published it um, if it couldn't be understood properly. That is, in one sense, I think the most proper way to understand it is without the Silmarillion. Because if you see what I mean, I know this sounds like I'm resistant to the Silmarillion or something, which of course I'm not. And yes, I think that the reading of the Silmarillion enriches the Lord of the Rings very significantly. Um, but but I think it's important to make sure that we take the um, that we take the what's there in the Lord of the Rings on its own, um, because that was how Tolkien was self-consciously presenting it. But anyway, Nate, having made that sort of wandering disclaimer. I want to get back to what you were saying about Morgoth's ring. Um, remember also that the Misty Mountains were originally raised, we are told, in the Silmarillion, um, to serve as an obstacle. Um, the reason they are so high and so difficult to cross over is that Morgoth raised them to try to impede Orome going back and forth in Middle-earth, just to make it harder for him. Um, so this you know, being resistant to people crossing, being actively resistant to people crossing is sort of 
to mix metaphors wildly in the DNA of the Misty Mountains, right? So it does make some kinds of sense in that way. But again, I'm sort of, uh, um, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, oh, of course, David, you're right, absolutely. Um, the high pass that they were they were crossing in The Hobbit is in a geographically different position from the Red Horn Gate. Um, it wouldn't be the same thing. Very good. You're right. I was I was I was misremembering that. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. See, Sarah, this is one of the interesting things. You know, Sarah's saying, you know, one reason they don't uh, cross is to, you know, one thing that we can see in the way that things happen differently is that. You know, it's not just a repeat of what happened from The Hobbit. Though I think one of the things that's really fascinating about it is that it also kind of is a little bit, right? That is, it's not, um, it doesn't take shape in exactly the same way, but there are some similarities, right? They're driven off the path by a storm. Um, in The Hobbit, they're captured by goblins and taken under and then have adventures underground and have to come through the mountains and come out somewhere else uh, in uh, the Lord of the Rings. They're turned back by a storm in the mountains. They don't get captured and taken down, um, but again, they still end up having to go down and have encounters with um, goblins and something else uh, before they can get out the other side. So there are actually, I think, a lot of parallels, but, but certainly it's not exactly the same. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Lysus just maybe the mountain's just old and cranky and doesn't want to be bothered by people. Yeah, it seems so. Um, though again, you'll notice it does. It's it doesn't. It's not like it stops everybody from crossing over at all times. Um, apparently, Eladan and Elro here crossed over this path not too long ago, um, and they didn't uh, have the same kind of trouble. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Oh, Nate makes a really great point about the possible objections of Karathras to. Uh, the dwarf kingdom within it. Um, you know, as Nate points out, when Gimli describes the dwarvish approach to building cities in the Guttering Caves, they don't seem like they hack a mountain, but they, they tend it like a garden. Um, now, you know, Khazad-dûm is going to be exactly the same as the Guttering Caves, um, but but yes, I mean, I, I I do think that we have reason to believe. This is why I would think um, <clears throat> the idea that Karathras would object to dwarves living under it. Um, is a little bit surprising, would be a little bit surprising. Same as if, like, we were to learn that the Maorns really hated the elves, you know, and we're like, oh, man, like, you know, that, I mean, that, that would seem inappropriate, right? I mean, given the relationship that the elves have with the trees, you would expect the trees to reciprocate. Um, and if the mountain is not reciprocating uh, with the dwarves, that would seem a little surprising. But, um, uh, so yeah, I, I, that, that's exactly what makes it seem so strange to me. But again, it's hard to think of other reasons. Um, yeah. Yeah, Sharon, yeah, Sharon is right that it's interesting how Boromir, who is certainly who's one of the spokes, you know, one of the representatives of mankind in the Fellowship, has an attitude that Karathras can be dealt with by man. He, he's the one who has like a very sort of like man versus man versus the mountain kind of attitude there. Um, yeah, 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 good, um, good, yeah, is, you know, Caden asks, is the, you know, could the, could the mountain be trying to keep the ring away because he hated the ring? Is there, I mean, is there, um, you know, we're given some indications that, you know, like with the Watcher grabbing Frodo, for instance, 
um, that these other creatures who are not working for Sauron are nevertheless conscious of the ring in some sense, or might potentially be conscious of the ring in some sense. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I uh, am not sure about... Um, again, we have almost no evidence about this. I mean, it's one of the things that's so challenging about this discussion topic, is that we have almost no actual evidence as to any of the answers to any of the questions. Um, but uh, but but yeah, it's conceivable. It's conceivable. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay, let's see. Yeah, I'm gonna have to jump ahead here a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you mean that the reference about the 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 flowering trees um, is a reference to the Gudrun case? No, that that that's the parallel that uh, um, that he was suggesting. Um, David has a good counter argument to that. David says Gimli was expressing an ideal that is in his description of what dwarves would do in the Gudrun caves. Moria may have started out that way, but we're told that the dwarves became greedy and overdelved, awaking the Valrog. Maybe Karathras hates having the Balrog as a neighbor. Um, it's possible. Now it was it was uh, it was called the Cruel, right? A long time ago. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I, I that that's that is well remembered about what we are told about the dwarves of Khazad Doom. Um, they did delve too greedily and too deep. The waking of the Balrog is sort of the obvious and direct consequence of their delving too deeply for uh, for Mithril. But but yeah, you do wonder if basically the uh, the mountain, you know, got fed up also. Uh, it's possible. It's possible. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, Kumiko raises a really good question, and again, we don't have an answer to this. She says, you know, I understand uh, the hostility of some of the old nature against the company. Um, but I wonder, aren't they hostile against you know, the enemies, against the orcs and the Balrog? And did, did, are, are they on the side of the orcs and the, the Balrogs? I don't see any reason to think so. Now, of course, we don't really know. You know, do another way to say that would do the orcs call Karathras the cruel? Also, um, you know, my guess would be, yeah, yeah. I do, um, I do suspect that. Uh, um, that it doesn't take any guff from Orc or Balrog either. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm not really, um, um, I'm not, I, again, we have even less evidence about that than about other things, but I think it's a great question. Um, yeah, yeah, very good. Um, yeah, says Robert says, I'm not altogether on anybody's side because nobody is altogether on my side. Uh, yeah, perhaps uh, if we could talk to Karathras, that's what he would say. <laughs> He's an equal opportunity angry mountain, Erica suggests. Quite possible, quite possible. Um, yeah, good. Uh, well, we should, uh, but I can't talk about Karathras the whole time. We should move on. And let's go, we've talked about, we've you know referred to dwarves a little bit just recently, um, and I want to focus on that more. The larger question I want to ask about, uh, you know, Moria and our sort of brush with dwarfdom here is, um, well, okay. What does it contribute? How? What do we see here? Um, what are? What is the role of the Mines of Moria, other than just a highway through and uh, you know a lead up to the encounter with the Balrog? What is the effect on the story 
of the encounter with the dwarvish culture that we see there. And I want to I want to start I want to focus on the song poetry time. I want to focus on the song that Gimli sings um, because I think that this is a this is obviously a really important. Um, sort of angle that we're given on this. So now I want you to, as I, I'm going to read it through, and as I read it through, I want you to be to be to be typing, to be thinking about um, what what are some important things that, things that you notice. What are some things that we learn here about the dwarves and the dwarven culture and their relationship with this world? And um, just basically tell me tell me what we should be paying attention to here. The world was young, the mountains green, no stain yet on the moon was seen. No words were laid on stream or stone when Durin woke and walked alone. He named the nameless hills and dells, he drank from yet untasted wells, he stooped and looked in mirror mirror, and saw a crown of stars appear as gems upon a silver thread above the shadow of his head. The world was fair, the mountains tall, in elder days before the fall of mighty kings in Nargathron and Gondolin, who now beyond the western seas have passed away. The world was fair in Durin's day. A king he was on carven throne, in many pillared halls of stone, with golden roof and silver floor, and runes of power upon the door. The light of sun and star and moon, and shining lamps of crystal hewn, undimmed by cloud or shade of night, there shone forever fair and bright. Their hammer on the anvil smote, their chisel clove and graver wrote, their forged was blade and bound was hilt, the delver mined, the mason built, their barrel, pearl, and opal pale, and metal wrought like fish's mail, buckler and corslet, axe and sword, and shining spears were laid in hoard. Unwearied then were Durin's folk, beneath the mountains music woke, the harpers harped, the minstrels sang, and at the gates the trumpets rang. The world is grey, the mountains old, the forge's fire is ashen cold, no harp is rung, no hammer falls, the darkness dwells in Durin's halls. Their shadow lies upon his tomb in Moria, in Khazad-dûm, but still the sunken stars appear in dark and windless mirror-mirror. There lies his crown in water-deep, till Durin wakes again from sleep. All right. Okay. What do we see here? Why do we get this? Um, what does the story of Durin have to do with this story? I mean, it's great background. It's, of course, one of the signature things about Tolkien's story, one of the things that um, not only, you know, made The Lord of the Rings such an incredible book, but, um, you know, sort of set the standard for fantasy, for 20th century fantasy, this idea of having this incredibly fully fleshed out world that we encounter kind of incidentally as we go along and have this sense of great antiquity and great untold stories lying behind it. We get all that stuff, of course, which is very important. And I don't want to uh, uh, to just sort of brush that away. But but tell me what we see here. What is emphasized in the story of Durin and the dwarves here in this song? Okay, let's see. Uh, okay. Um, Erica, fantastic observation. She says that it's strange that the second stanza is so elf-focused. I would think that Gimli would sing about old dwarvish places that are now no more. Yeah, why do we get Nargothrond and Gondolin uh, there? Um, well, what I would take from that, Erica, is that seems to me evidence 
that this song that he's singing is um, a public song. That is, he's not revealing secrets here. Um, because it does seem fairly clear that the point of that second stanza is context, right? Historical context, connecting uh, Durin and Khazad-dûm with the history of the outside world, um, sort of as if for an elvish audience. Um, this is not for a just dwarf audience, so he doesn't just make reference to dwarvish things. Um, because, of course, we know how secretive dwarfs are, dwarves are. We're told that they, they don't teach their language to anybody, um, and uh, they, 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 well, they're very secretive and untrusting, right? So he's not going to... There, there may be, there certainly are versions of this song and songs like it about Durin, which are kind of in-house dwarf songs, right? Um, and perhaps they do point to things in sort of the context of dwarvish history and culture, um, which would not be very accessible to other people. But this is clearly not one of those. Gimli is not, I think, revealing secrets here. Um, this is a, as I say, this is a, this is a public song. Um, okay, good. Um, and, you know, that, uh, uh, that is interesting, uh, Dime, also, that um, she points out that in that stanza, he's not just contextualizing it, but he's pointing out how the dwarves outlasted them, right? Before the fall of mighty kings in Nargothrond and Gondolin, who now beyond the Western Seas have passed away. Um, so on the one hand, it's, that's how far back Durin's day was. But, but there is a little bit of uh, sort of, I don't know if it's quite smug, because of course it's hard to be smug about Moria, because it's fallen now, um, so, you know, like they can't really brag about it too much, but, but, but it did outlast them, right? It did survive uh, the first age, uh, and, and all the way through for a long time. Um, yeah, good. Um, and I agree, certainly, Nate, it does add a great depth to it. Um, you know, a, 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 you know, a story that goes back thousands of years. Um, as Giselle says, it makes the world seem a lot larger, coming into contact with a dwarvish environment, but only meeting a couple dwarves. You hear about some history and lore of elves, but you act also actually meet elves in large populations. I agree. There is something much more mysterious about the dwarves and the dwarvish populations whom we never really encounter, whom we never really meet. Um, yeah, yeah. And yes, Trish, the element of prophecy uh, in the song is, I think, a really important one. This sense, as Trish says, of the once and future king here of the dwarves. Um, that was one of the one of the one of the elements of the dwarvish thing that I remember as a child. Um, you know, to use a Tolkien phrase, moved me most deeply was that the prophecy of the of the coming of Durin, Durin the last, um, and. Uh, you know, just the idea of that uh, I found I found very powerful. Um, yeah, good. Very good. Nate says, you know, this also shows the hobbits who have little sense of their own history beyond family trees, beyond very recent history, really, um, are being exposed to a wider world, both physically and chronologically. Absolutely, I think it's a good way to say it. That is, it's not just that they're traveling, but they're they're beginning to see um, all of these ancient stories. Um, yeah. Um, and yes, I also agree with you, Nate. The line, the world was fair in Durin's day. Um, 
does sort of suggest or at least imply that things were better and greater in the past. It is a very medieval sentiment that the world is kind of in decline. I mean, you'll notice the difference between the world was young, the mountains green, no stain yet on the moon was seen, to the world is gray, the mountains old, the forge's fire is ashen cold. On the one hand, he's referring to the fall of Moria there. Um, you know, no harp is rung, no hammer falls, the darkness dwells in Doolin's halls. But, but the mountains are old too, where they used to be green. Um, the world is aging um, and in decline. That's, that's a fairly stable thing uh, in Tolkien's world. Um, yeah, good, good. Yes, and uh, Trish, you're right. That second stanza does also point to the time when the elves and dwarves uh, were, were allies. Um, though that, though the, the, the heyday of that was later on, of course, um, with the Kingdom of Holland, um, which, you know, were... were survivors um, of Gondolin and Nagathrond, um, you know, one of the last kingdoms of the Noldor uh, in Middle-earth. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Good, yeah, as uh, Erica says, everybody knows about Nagathrond and Gondolin, so it's an easy way to establish the time frame. Yeah, except again, remember, Nobody knew about it at the time that this book was published, right? I mean, the references to Nargothrond and Gondolin, which those of us who know the Silmarillion are like, oh, yeah, well, of course, Gondolin. Nargothrond, that, that places it really well, right? In, not in 1954, it didn't. You know, uh, these were just unknown. These, these names were as unknown as the names in the Arendelle poem. Um, you know, he builds a ship of Timberfeld and Nimbrathel to journey in. Uh, okay, where's Nimbrathel? I have no idea. Where's Gondolin? Uh, well, now they've heard of Gondolin because it's in The Hobbit, but not in Argothrond. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Sarah says, it shows that the first dwarves aren't like the firstborn. They come after, and yet they're still naming things. Um, yeah, I agree. The, uh, the, the, the naming... Um, he named the nameless hills and dells. He drank from yet untasted wells. By the way, that's one of my favorite lines of the whole poem. He drank from yet untasted wells. That image of yet untasted wells is such a, uh, such a beautiful one, I think. Um, and here he is naming the hills. I kind of think maybe the hills might get grumpy about that. <laughs> but enough about Kirothros. Um, yeah, yeah. Very good. Mike uh, is pointing out again, as, as Mike is so good at doing the context of the poem, Sam has just asked, what did they do it all for? That is, you know, why did they, why did they delve all this stuff? Um, and most in hard rock, too. Um, and uh, the poem, he says, doesn't say why exactly, but they say what it was like. But we do get a kind of a glimpse, a kind of a sense of it, right? Um, why, why it would have been done, what it was like. Um, Yes, yes, Robert. The uh, um, the lines actually the lines from a king he was on carven throne in many pillared halls of stone. Um, that whole section is adapted from the Lay of Lathian, where it's describing um, well, not actually Thingol is not named that yet. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, anyway, um, the the that passage has a really complicated history. Um, I have heard the theory, which I am fairly convinced by, that when Tolkien wrote those lines in the Lay of Lathian describing that, 
he was not actually writing a story of Baron and Luthien yet, and he decided to change it into a story of Baron and Luthien and kept some of the stuff. Uh, it's complicated. It's, it's a, that's, a, that's a really complicated moment right there. Um, but also a wonderful example of Tolkien kind of recycling his material. He does this a lot, especially when he, when he wrote something that he liked a lot, but hadn't ever published and believed he wouldn't ever publish, he would recycle it. He'd, he'd bring it in to uh, his published works. And this, I think, is one of the, you know, he liked those lines, clearly. And so he, he brings them in and recontextualizes them to talk about Durin. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Let's see. Okay. Um, yeah. 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 The poem does put the dwarves on on a path of decline, uh, as Mike says. Um, yeah, Sharon. That's a neat point, isn't it? Sharon says it's interesting that Durin sees and is enamored of the stars, which the elves usually are looking up at by looking down at the lake. Dwarves are more concerned with what is under their feet and not the sky, but can be equally as impressed by the ancient lights. Yeah, and you'll notice it's it's here as in the Hobbit too. Stars are described with gemstone imagery by dwarves, right? Um, they uh, that's you know it's uh, as gems upon a silver thread above the shadow of his head. Um, so yes, we do. I I, I I love that. I love that uh, that observation, Sharon. The similarity of looking down uh, of gazing at the stars in wonder, as we know the elves did. But you know that that view of the elves looking up at the stars and the dwarves looking down at the stars reflected in the lake, um, very cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Sarah says I like the circularness of the crown. That is the 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 his seeing the crown of stars appear, uh, and uh, um, you know there lies his crown in water deep. Um, and then the reference to his waking again from sleep you know, at, at the end. Um, yeah, th this, uh, the, the shape of this poem is really interesting. Another thing that I think just to, to, to do a brief, um, to do a, a brief mention of the sort of poetic form of this poem as well, um, it's, it is very heavily enjammed, to use the technical literary terms, um, you know, E-N-J-A-M-B, Ed in enjambment in poetry, of course, is when one line of a poem sort of spills over uh, into the next one, where they where, where there isn't a pause at the end of the line, um, but the lines kind of run over into each other. And this poem does that a whole lot. Um, it's easy if you're not careful; it's easy to run out of breath when reading this poem. Um, look at how that is used in that second stanza that we already talked about. All of those lines in that stanza run together except the last one, right? You get this five-line buildup, and then the sixth line is sort of the final statement or summary, and there's a pause before that one. The world was fair, the mountains tall in elder days before the fall of mighty kings in Nargothrond and Gondolin, who now beyond the western seas passed away. That is all one thought. You can't, it, it, there's no pause um, at the end of any of those lines. But then the western seas have passed away, the world was fair in Durin's day. We get one self-contained line um, as a sort of emphatic um, end summary of that whole stanza. Um, and uh, that very frequently happens in this. It's a, it's a, very, it's a very rhythmic um, and sort of continuously rhythmic uh, poem. Um, 
I also think it's kind of interesting to me how fluid the lines are. Um, that is, it, it doesn't, one might, one might think, one might expect a kind of hammering beat, but we don't get that. Um, um, there are moments where we do get that kind of, especially in the stanza describing the weaponry and the, basically the work. You know, buckler and corslet, axe and sword and shining spears were laid in hoard is much more kind of percussive um, as we might expect. But uh, anyway, um, so I think uh, um, it's very striking how, how much these lines all flow together, um, which is, uh, again, I just, I, the sound of it, it is very, um, it's very smooth and rhythmic and driving all the way through. Um, okay, let's see, Goes several other, um, uh, before, let's see, several other um, things. Yeah, um, the reference to naming. Um, yeah, the naming the nameless hills and dells. One sense that I think, you know, because we do have, as a couple of you have mentioned, you know, the elves were famously the namers, right? They're the ones who went around naming everything. And yet we can see um, there is this sense of, like, this one of the things that makes this a characteristically dwarfish place, right? Um, he, the, the hills and dells, here were nameless before Durin came. The, no elf got there first and named this place. They're, they're not taking over, um, though of course the elves come and give them other names, as Gimli explains. Um, but um, um, but yeah, the dwarves gave them their own private names first. Um, yeah, and Mike, great point about their music. Um, you know, the, the dwarves are so strong back then that unwearied after working, they can make music. Um, you know, uh, pointing out, or Mike suggesting that music or song is the higher art, even than, uh, uh, higher even than craft, uh, that is uh, the craft of the crafts of their hands. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that does seem, that does seem possible. And then again, you have, uh, you know, no harp is rung, no hammer falls, again, in that order. The darkness dwells in Durin's halls. Um, Dime, I also find it interesting that Sam was the person who was most interested in the poem and wanted to learn it. Um, yeah, and the line that really struck him, the line he repeats in Moria, in Casa Doom, um, is interesting because it's the names, right? You know, his that the line that he takes away, um, that he sort of quotes as if it were the essence of the song is the line that gives the two names, the names of uh, the, the, the elvish name and the dwarf name of the place. But of course, Moria is only its name after its fall, um, which is why that name is not used in the song until we get to the end there, right? Until we're talking about when the forge's fire is ashen cold. Um, um, the shadow lies upon his tomb in Moria, in Casa Doom, and there's a kind of wistfulness, I think, to that second name, right? The shadow lies upon his tomb in Moria. Moria means the black pit, right? I mean, that's that's that's, uh, um, yeah, it's it's associated with shadow by name, uh, by the elves. Um, uh, it's also a Greek pun too. I mean, I think this is just a, a, a pun that I think I, I, it's impossible for me to think that Tolkien wouldn't have been thinking about this. 
um, guy who was like composing orations in Greek in high school. Um, Moria also means foolishness um, in Greek. Um, it's, you know, like those passages, if you're familiar with the Bible, uh, you know, again, 1 Corinthians, when Paul is talking about the wisdom of man, the foolishness of God, the wisdom of God, and the foolishness of man, the word for foolishness in those uh, oppositions is moria. Um, and uh, when, when it's hard for me not to see that as kind of coloring the Elvish word for this place. Um, it seems kind of appropriate in that way. But anyway, um, um, the shadow lies upon his tomb in Moria in Khazad-dum. Khazad-dum is not a name which is like Moria, slanted. Moria is the name of the place after it fell into darkness. Khazad-dum is the name of the place in its glory. And uh, the assigning it of both of those names in one line is a kind of good synopsis of the song in Moria in Khazad-dum. Um, so yeah, I, think that's, I think that's really cool. And of course, Female as we see, Sam is the one with the ear for that, right? Naturally. Of course he is. Um, good. Sharon, I agree that the, the rhymes in this song are much more straightforward. There's no there's no kind of, you know, she says there's nothing, you know, tricky and clever like uh, like the A. Arundel song. We don't get that kind of in, uh, that kind of intricacy. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, and Kate and I agree. The sound is kind of like far over the misty mountains, cold, which is a, a poem which makes an interesting comparison with this one, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Dime is remembering reference in the Silmarillion to. Uh, um, actually, though, I think it worked the other way around that the dwarves resented elves renaming things. Um, that the elves came and changed all the names, and it was Meme the Petty Dwarf who was resentful of that. Um, but uh, so I think we can we kind of see him working with that tension there. Um, yes, yes, Giselle, the dwarves do love instruments. Uh, after all, they travel with cellos and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> yes, um, Sharon. Yes. Uh, uh, no stain yet on the moon was seen. Um, yes, there are stories of the moon getting besmirched. Um, it was attacked by Morgoth, we're told, um, and besmirched, though the stuff about the sun and moon is stuff that changes all over the place in Tolkien's writings. Um, his conception of that and how that worked in his mythology. Um, but yes, that, that, there, that is a reference. There is a story lying behind that reference. Um, though again, clearly in the context of this, obviously there's no indication that anyone is going to remember um, even after the Silmarillion is published, that it's unlikely that people are going to make that connection. But yet, um, what we do get is that sense of that sense of decline, right? That you can even see by looking at the moon that the world is in decline. Um, um, so you know, this this is at the time before even there was a stain on the moon. Is sort of the general atmosphere of it. Um, Um, yeah, let's see. Um, Mike says the answer to Sam's question again. Sam's question is why did they do it all, or why did they do it for? And Mike says the answer, the why answer is Mithril. Um, Gandalf has to answer. I wonder why Gimli can't answer the question. Yes, 
Well, I'm not sure that's exactly the answer, at least it's not the full answer. Um, you know, he's Sam is seeing um, sort of the purpose, the function of this song. Sam is seeing these darksome holes, right? You know, he sees these massive tunnels all over the place, these huge chambers that have been carved out of hard rock, as he says. Um, you know, dwarves must have worked incredibly hard. And why? Why would they do this? And his implication is, who would want to live here? This place is a dump. Right? I mean, it's, 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 you know, they didn't live in these darksome holes, surely. Right? Is very, you know, his question there is very revealing. Um, and what Gimli is explaining, what his song is doing, is not exactly explaining what was the purpose of this. In one sense, Mithril was the purpose, but it wasn't why for... Um, you know, making these halls and for the, the beauty and the grandeur of the halls, um, the, you know, what he is doing is showing, let me explain, these are not darksome holes. You're not getting the proper sense of what Khazad-dûm was like. You know, this is the great realm and city of the Dwarodelf. Um, so that is, I think, really the, the essential element of the, of the poem. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, let's see, good. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Sarah says, Tolkien, I, she says, I think Tolkien is really good at making his characters sound like whatever species they are, even without much dialect or phonetics. Uh, the dwarfish lines, stories, songs sound dwarfish, same as elves, hobbitsmen, ants, and even goblin songs. Um, yeah, I agree. Certainly in his verse, he was so sensitive to the sound of words um, and to the rhythm of speech that uh, in his poems especially, he does a fantastic job of conveying that kind of atmosphere with nothing but the rhythm of the sounds. Um, if you think about the difference between this, um, the meter is very similar between this and the Nimrodel song. The world was young, the mountains green, no stain yet on the moon was seen. Um, this is iambic tetrameter. There are iams, dun 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 dun, and it and there are four of them per line. Iambic tetrameter is a notoriously bouncy meter. Um, this is the meter that uh, um, uh, let's see some of um, um, this is the, this is the meter that uh, green eggs and ham is in. Um, yeah. Um, oh, do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam. I am. Could you? Would you? In a boat? I could not. Would not. In a boat. Um, uh, that's again. It's and and it can get. It is so easy. Iambic tetrameter gets so monotonous really fast. Um, and there was a lot of Middle English poetry that was written in iambic tetrameter. And by the end of it, you're just like beating your head against the wall in that time. Um, that's, I think, one of the reasons for the enjambment here. It makes it flow together very differently and not just become bouncy and annoying. Um, but again, he uses almost the same meter in the Nimrodel song. But you think of how differently these lines, how different these lines sound from that, you know, and cursed the faithless ship that bore him far from Nimrodel. Um, one of, two of the most perfect iambic lines I know of. Um, and yet, but again, the, the, the atmosphere, the tone of it, the sound of it is very different. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very good. Um, 
<laughs> yes, as Erica says, Gimli doesn't go around with a Scottish accent like in the movies. No, no, he doesn't. Um, yeah, good. Um, okay, very good. Well, I want to. I want to move. Well, okay. One other thing I want to do first: um, the reference to uh, the mirror, mirror. I want to look at uh, briefly look at their encounter with the mirror, mirror, and then we'll look at the Balrog, and that'll be as much as we'll get time for. Uh, in fact, more honestly than we have time for. <laughs> Come with me, Frodo," said the dwarf. "Cried the dwarf, springing from the road. I would not have you go without keying, without seeing Khalid Zaran. He ran down the long green slope. Frodo followed slowly, drawn by the still blue water in spite of hurt and weariness. Sam came up behind. Beside the standing stone, Gimli halted and looked up. It was cracked and weather-worn, and the faint runes upon its side could not be read. This pillar marks, marks the spot where Durin first looked in the mirror mirror, said the dwarf. Let us, let us look ourselves once ere we go. They stooped over the dark water. At first they could see nothing. Then slowly they saw the forms of the encircling mountains mirrored in a profound blue, and the peaks were like plumes of white flame above them. Beyond there was a space of sky. There, like jewels sunk in the deep, shone glinting stars, though sunlight was in the sky above. Of their own stooping forms, no shadow could be seen. Um, this is another one of those, uh, another one of those um, moments in the Lord of the Rings. These sort of dwarf moments, which, uh, which again, I've just found really uh, stirring and mysterious. Uh, I, get, I, you know, I, I, I remember being mystified and really lingering over this paragraph uh, when I was reading this book um, as a kid. Uh, uh, very good, Caden. Durin had a shadow in the mirror mirror, right? Um, saw a crown of stars appear as gems upon a silver thread above the shadow of his head. Durin could see his reflection in the mirror mirror, but they can't. Um, very good. Very well noticed, Caden. Um, yeah. Um, Erica, fantastic point. She says, it's interesting that Durin's waking place can still be visited, but that of the elves is lost forever. It, it's one of the things that gives this place, this, this place, the mirror mirror in particular, has a kind of, a kind of, of, of holiness to it, a kind of antiquity, um, a particular quality of antiquity that we don't get in any elvish things. Yes, there are ancient elvish things that we see, of course, but, um, but they're not like Aboriginal Elvish things. Um, they're, they are all things from, you know, the Elvish culture stretches back so far that even the ancient things that we see are still recent by Elvish standards. Um, there is a sense in which the, the, you know, the origins of elves and their first things are lost so far back in antiquity that the, you know, the, the land has changed and we can't see. And of course, we know that Beleriand is no more, but, but not just that, you know, to Quivian and there is no returning. I love that line from the Silmarillion. Um, but here, we do get it for the dwarves. We do get Helid Zaram and we get that pillar. The pillar marks the spot where Durin first looked in the mirror mirror. Um, you know, this is one of the times that we get uh, very powerfully that sense of, um, you know, that sense that you can get when you visit a place like Stonehenge or something like that, you know, and you're sort of thinking like, you know, in this very place, uh, you know these these ancient famous people stood. Um, uh, it's uh, 
it's 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 a really powerful moment in that way, and I agree, Erica. It mean you know, in a sense, we see the like ancient heart of dwarvendom in ways that we don't see. Karen Amroth may be the heart of Elvendom on Earth, but it, it is so in a very different sense than uh, than the mirror mirror is the heart of dwarvendom on Earth. Um, in a very different sense, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Sarah says it doesn't seem logical that as we get reflections of stars and no reflections of themselves, there is something magical about this. Um, the magic, I think that it's the the, the two. There, um, let me just sort of tell you. And again, this this again quickly gets fairly subjective. But here would be my own personal reading of this, or at least how how this passage always struck me. Um, First, we have the two things that I always associate with Chelad Zaram and what they see in it are its our memory and grief. Basically, that it is remembering Durin. Um, it's they see glittering, glinting stars. Um, I don't think it's simply unaffected by the sun. Like, I don't think that the stars that they are seeing in Chelad Zaram are the stars that you would be able to see if the sun weren't lighting up the the upper atmosphere at that moment. Um, you know, if you could see past the glare of the blue sky, uh, the stars, that's what it is. So it's just like, you know, the reflection is like penetrating the atmosphere in some sense. Kelazarum sees. I don't think that's what we see. I think that what they're seeing when they look in there is what Durin saw when he first looked in. Um, and they don't see themselves. As Caden pointed out, Durin did see himself. And Khaled Zaram remembers that. Um, not like that it's still showing a picture of Durin, but it's not going to show anybody else. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I think, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, 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 it's very, um, um, again, I have no evidence to prove any of those things, um, but it's, uh, it is interesting. And Mike, I agree, the reaction... Um, you know, that is that Frodo and Sam, that, you know, Sam won't include Pippin after the fact that he won't tell Pippin about it. Sam is included in this, um, you know, uh, the, Gimli invites Frodo with him to see the mirror mirror, and Sam is included, he comes too, um, but he won't tell Pippin about it afterwards. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that's like, ex that's, a, that's an exclusionary thing, really, but it is sort of a sense of how Sam has been moved by it and how he can't explain his impressions. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and it is interesting, I agree, that uh, Dime that he only invited Frodo. Um, yes, and Kumiko, I think that seeing this and thinking about Khaled Zaram and what they see does help to explain why Gimli is so moved by Galadriel's references to it. As Kumiko points out, Galadriel knew the beauty of Khaled Zaram too, and, ha and clearly had respect for it. Um, and that does seem to be at the heart of um, what, of, of, the, of the response that Gimli has to Galadriel. Um, she is not just saying a polite thing. Um, she is saying something which is deeply personal. Um, which has like an almost religious significance for Gimli, clearly. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Sarah, exactly. Um, 
uh, Sarah recalling the end of the song in dark and windless mirror mirror there lies his crown in water deep till Durin wakes again from sleep so the stars and the reflection are kind of waiting for Durin um, no I think he is coming back we're told he would come back um, uh, so I don't think it's waiting there forever necessarily well, we don't know when Durin's coming back um, but um, but yes I think that when Durin wakes again from sleep, that's the next time that somebody will see his reflection in the mirror mirror. Um, that's exactly how I take that. Um, uh, yeah, Caden, you're right. Galadriel's mirror starts by showing stars. And remember Sam's reference? When Sam says, most like I'll just see I'll just see stars or something I don't understand, he seems to be remembering Kevin's arm too, right? Oh yeah, I've done the whole magical pool thing, right? Um, I know what to expect. Um, uh, but uh, okay we have well we don't have any time we're already over time but I don't care I'm going to we're talking about the Bridge of Casa Doom and that's all it's good okay now let's read tell me well again tell me what you find striking tell me what you think is important about this passage um, and again I want to preface this by saying I don't want to talk about Silmarillion I want to think about the Silmarillion. I want to think about the Balrog as he is depicted here. Um, because I think that there are some things that, again, the idea of the Balrogs changed a lot over time. And um, I think there are ways in which thinking about the Silmarillion Balrog stories can kind of limit our understanding um, of the significance of this moment as it happens in the story. Anyway. The dark figures streaming with fire raced towards them. The orcs yelled and poured over the stone gangways. Then Boromir raised his horn and blew. Loud the challenge rang and bellowed like the shout of many throats under the cavernous roof. For a moment the orcs quailed and the fiery shadow halted. Then the echoes died as suddenly as a flame blown out by a dark wind, and the enemy advanced again. Over the bridge, cried Gandalf, recalling his strength. Fly! This is a foe beyond any of you. I must hold the narrow way. Fly! Aragorn and Boromir did not heed the command, but still held their ground side by side, behind Gandalf at the far end of the bridge. The others halted just within the doorway at the hall's end, and turned, unable to leave their leader to face the enemy alone. The Balrog reached the bridge. Gandalf stood in the middle of the span, leaning on the staff in his left hand, but in his other hand Glamdring gleamed cold and white. His enemy halted again, facing him, and the shadow about it reached out like two vast wings. It raised the whip, and the thongs whined and cracked. Fire came from its nostrils, but Gandalf stood firm. You cannot pass, he said. The orc stood still, and a dead silence fell. I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun. Go back to the shadow. You cannot pass. The Balrog made no answer. The fire in it seemed to die, but the darkness grew. It stepped forward slowly onto the bridge, and suddenly it drew itself up to a great height, and its wings were spread from wall to wall, but still Gandalf could be seen, glimmering in the gloom, and he seemed small, altogether alone, and altogether alone, gray and bent like a wizened tree before the onset of a storm. All right. Um, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Okay, good. So, let's see, sorry. Okay, what do we notice here? What do we see? Um, 
Good, Dimei, very good. I was I was really struck by that too this time. Um, Boromir's horn had some power. If it could halt a Balrog even briefly, I agree. Um, and notice the 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 kind of power that it has, um, like the shouts of many throats under the cavernous roof. Um, there is this brief sort of phantom confrontation, right? You've got the Balrog with the orcs pouring over the gangways behind him, so you have this army uh, marching towards them, and briefly they are met as if by another army, right? Uh, like the shout of many throats under the cavernous roof. Um, and the orcs quailed, and the fiery shadow halted. The Balrog's pauses. Yes, it does have power. And then what we see, the echoes died as suddenly as a flame blown out by a dark wind. And I believe we are to take that as whatever power Boromir's horn is in fact um, operating over his, over his enemies, the Balrog snuffs it. Um, and his power rises deliberately to, to, to cancel it out, and the enemy advanced again. Um, that is, I mean, that's an example, I've talked about this many, many times, but of course, the operation of magic in Tolkien is rarely given more direct explanation than that. I would point to that as one of the examples of, of one of the, one of the most clear and plain descriptions of magic in operation in Tolkien. Is Boromir's horn a magical horn? Yeah, it seems it clearly is. Um, and its magic was working until the Balrog overcame its magic with his own. Um, so yeah, great point, me. I agree. Um, yes, Nate likes the uh, description of Glamdring as cold and white, both qualities the exact opposite of the Balrog. Um, yes, very good. Um, yes, Nate, the whip. Um, whips are only depicted as being used by, ev by evil creatures. Uh, yes, because whips are associated um, persistently in Tolkien with slavery, um, with the whipping of slaves and, 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 and prisoners. We see this in the Goblin Town song, um, in The Hobbit. Um, we see this in the orcs in, uh, uh, in The Return of the King. I mean, whips are used for driving slaves in Tolkien. We almost never see whips being used um, uh, for other reasons. So, um, so yeah, and, and that's, I think, an important piece of context for the Balrog. He, too, has a whip. Um, and that, I think, does tell us something about, not just simply the fact that he's evil, but, um, but does tell us something about kind of the quality of his evil. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Sharon says, uh, when they were little kids, uh, yeah, it's one of the passages that uh, makes me weep still. Not quite as much as the eucatastrophe moments. Uh, uh, the arrival uh, of the ships with black sails at the Battle of Pelennor Fields, I can't get through that passage without weeping, uh, even now. But, um, uh, but good, good. Um, yeah. Okay, Liza asks the good question here. Can we explain th what the flame of Honor and the Udun references mean? Um, the Okay, Honor is very simple and this is the one which is ex
Akuma of Anor means in what sense Gandalf is wielding the power of the fire of the sun is not necessarily obvious, except, of course, in retrospect, when we learn that he is carrying one of the three Elvish rings, and that does seem to be what he's talking about. It's the ring of fire that he wields. Um, and the ring of fire, he tells us, we wouldn't know it if he didn't tell it here, um, seems to be associated with the power of the sun. Um, remember, as I forget which one of you, one of you was talking about this um, in the class before last when we were discussing the ring rates and the antipathy between the ring rates and the noonday sun. Um, and uh, uh, that's clearly one of the things that I think we should be remembering. That, that, that was, I forget which one of you said that, but that is a, um, uh, that is a, a very, uh, a, a very important connection. Now, um, now as for the other flame of Udun, um, Udun is one which might seem to be explained if you look at the map, but isn't actually. That is, if you look carefully at the Middle Earth map, um, at the Third Age Middle Earth map, you will see that Udun is, uh, there's a part of Mordor that is named Udun. It is the place right inside the gate, um, the Black Gate uh, in the northwest corner. Um, but that's not the Udun that he's talking about. I was really confused by that when I was a kid, because I, I did scrutinize the maps very carefully, and I noticed Udun. And I remember when I first noticed, I'm like, oh, that's what Gandalf is talking about. And I'm like, in what sense is he the flame of like the northwest corner of Mordor? Um, and I thought for a long time that that meant, well, he must be an active servant of Sauron. Um, no, the reason is beyond that. That is, Udun is the, was the name of the of the of the, the like the kingdom of Morgoth back in the age. So he's he Gandalf is pointing to. He knows where the Balrog comes from. Um, he is the flame of Udun, um, and it is that same Udun, uh, Morgoth's Udun, that Sauron is basically doing. It's like an homage to Udun that he's named that he calls that part of more of uh, of Mordor Udun. Um, so, yeah, Giselle, it does mean essentially something like the fire of hell, uh, f flame of hell. Um, Udun is, is, is basically like hell. Um, that word, it, Tolkien used the word hell uh, to translate um, like the place where Morgoth lived um, several times. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Now, um, Nate said exactly right. Like the Nazgul, part of the Balrog's power seems to be fear. Absolutely it is. Um, that's uh, that's that I think is 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 very consistent, um, and yes, the contrast Jeff between the Balrog and Gandalf is um, is really moving. You know, you know, Gandalf is one of the most powerful entities in Middle Earth. Um, yes, though less so now than he than Gandalf 1.0, less so than Gandalf 2.0. But um, but yes, I mean he's he is he is very powerful. Um, but to make him seem old and frail. Though again, I love the language there describing him. That um, that image which makes him sound so desperate and so overwhelmed, like a wizened tree before the onset of a storm. Um, you know, really conveys this sort of um, the Balrog is this big, huge, titanic, powerful thing, and Gandalf is this tiny little shriveled thing in comparison. But a wizened tree before the onset of the storm, what's going to happen? Um, you know, wizened trees don't fall over very often. You know, I mean, that's, you know, to a gray, bent, wizened tree, 
they've seen a whole bunch of storms, man, and they don't usually come down. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I suspect that you know one of the things we get from that is is we do see sort of the toughness of Gandalf and the endurance um, that he can take it basically. But what we do not see is like clash of the titans, like you know one mammoth thing power against another. Um, we can see that in the destruction of of the Balrog sword. You know when when Gandalf parries uh, the attack from its sword and its sword leaps up and uh, in molten fragments, uh, we can see that in fact they are evenly matched. Um, that we do have one strong power fighting against another here. But again, the visual image that we get is not that, uh, and I think does kind of um, tip us off there. Yeah, as Nate says, deep roots are not reached by the frost. Absolutely. Um, yes, Sharon Gandalf's staff does break, but, and this is very important, um, there, if there's one passage in one scene in the entire Peter Jackson movie that makes me enraged. It is the scene where the Witch King breaks Gandalf's staff in the attack on Minas Tirith in that um, extended edition scene in Return of the King. Pisses me off every time I see it. Um, that would never happen. The breaking of the staff is such an important thing. Saruman, your staff is broken. Gandalf's staff breaks when he breaks it. It is an act of self-sacrifice. He is pouring out his own power and his own life uh, in order to, to, to do in the Balrog and to save his friends. Um, so that's, uh, that's very important. Um, so yes, his staff breaks, but um, his, his, his staff breaks, but he breaks it. Um, he breaks it. Good. Um, Yeah, interesting. Sarah says, if Gandalf is wielding the good fire, the sun fire, and the Balrog has the dark fire, then it's like sun versus shadow. And like with the ringwraith, sun makes shadows and only banishes them at high noon, yet Gandalf seems pretty powerful and high noonish to me. Um, so why does he get caught and pulled in? Good. I mean, one contrast, we do get the sunlight versus shadow kind of motif going on here. And remember, we've seen this before. We got that with Tom Bombadil and, and, the, and the Barrow White, too. The Barrow White was associated, though of course that shadow was cold. Right? It was it was cold in darkness, and warmth and light came in with Bombadil. Whereas we have the you know the shadow and flame um, associated with, with the Balrog. But anyway, um, the Tom Bombadil and Barrow White confrontation was short and easy, right? You know he comes in singing about the color of his boots, and light pours in, and the Ringwraith flees. There's no fight. There's a confrontation, but there's no fight. Um, it doesn't work that way with Gandalf. Um, he is not, in that sense, um, well, I don't know, Seraphis is not high noonish enough, um, but it does. It does show. I mean, there is there is there is power in this shadow, power to oppose him, um, and that I think is one of the things that we see. The Barrow White, it's, it's another interesting kind of contrast. Again, it's not just like, well, one is hot and the other one is cold. But we can see, and with the Ringwraiths too, they have a different kind of power from the Balrog. Um, the, uh, you know, again, back to Boromir and his horn. Um, the, uh, you know, with the extinguishing of the Echoes, you know, the, the Echoes died as suddenly as a flame blown out by a dark wind. Um, it's that power of the dark wind. It's not just shadow. It's not just emptiness. It's not just 
sort of the nullification of things. Um, there is power, it's like a wind. Um, and uh, uh, so and so we can see it's the, the, the dark, he has dark fire. Um, it's not just darkness, which is a negative. Um, that is the absence of light. Um, it is uh, like the absence of light, the absence of life is what the wraith has and is attempting to curse uh, Frodo and his companions with. Um, the Balrog has something else. Um, and, uh, you know, and we have, you know, it's, it's shadowy wings. Um, yes, the grave dude is not the equal of a Balrog. Absolutely not. Um, yeah, Mike asks a good question. Can Balrogs speak? The silence of the Balrog um, I, is very ominous. <laughs> you know, it's very, uh, um, uh, it is, uh, I think it's a fantastic choice by Tolkien not to have the Balrog give a speech. Um, but, uh, you know, we hear the Barrowite speak. Um, we hear the Nazgul speak. Um, the Balrog is silent. Um, can they speak? Yes, I believe them capable. Based on Silmarillion stuff, I believe them capable of speech. Um, but they were never particularly, um, you know, sort of brainy. I mean, they, um, they're, I mean, the Silmarillion, when we see them, they're Morgoth's thugs. Um, they're his muscle. Um, they're his heavies. Um, and but here, I think the effect of the silence of the Balrog shows a kind of initially disdain and later rage by the Balrog. That is, the Balrog doesn't seem to... He's not going to square off with Gandalf um, in the way that the, that the Lord of the Ringwraiths does, right? You know, he's not... We see two speeches um, when confronted the Lord of the Ringwraiths likes to speechify, right? You know, he has an old fool, this is my hour speech. And he also has a, or, you know, come not between the Nazgul and his prey, or he shall not slay thee in thy turn, but bear thee away to the houses of lamentation beyond all darkness. It's all very intimidating. It's, his speech is very scary. Um, but he still, you know, he makes, he makes these, Balrog, when confronted with Gandalf, does not stop and say, old fool, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't confirm, because it's like, he's just, seems to believe he's just going to mow over Gandalf. Um, so I think it's, again, I, what, what, how I read that is as a kind of disdain. And there also, the lack of speech gives the Balrog a kind of, a kind of bestial fury. He is, um, he's, he's dehumanized by it. Um, the Ringwraiths, remember, were men. There is a way in which they, um, in which they, uh, um, there's a way in which the, 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 you know, we're supposed to relate to the ring rates, right? I mean, again, Frodo kind of really is relating to them. I mean, he's in, immersed in the wraithification process himself at that point. Um, but, uh, but the Balrog is just alien. Um, now, as Robert points out, he does, uh, uh, cry, give a terrible cry when he falls forward, right? He does vocalize. Um, he's not utterly silent. Um, though again, it's as he's 
starting to plummet uh, to his eventual destruction that he does finally cry out. Did the Balrog even know who Gandalf was? I doubt it. I mean, Gandalf is a, kind of a Johnny come late. Um, or, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of dragon-like, kind of charging bull-like. Um, yeah, yeah, as uh, Mike says, definitely kind of kind of bestial. Or minotaur, yeah, 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 all of those. Um, yeah, does he know who he was? No, I don't think he knows his background. Um, this is why Gandalf is identifying himself. Right? I mean, it's one of the things that Gandalf is doing. Gandalf is declaring himself. Um, Remember that moment at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring when Gandalf, like when when Gandalf talks about, and then you shall see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. Right, he cloaks himself normally. He is uncloaking himself. They they are seeing Gandalf the Grey uncloaked, though they're not in the path of the high beams. Right, it's the it, it is to the Balrog that he is uncloaking himself. Um, and then this is the moment where um, where the Balrog sort of begins to take Gandalf seriously. Um, and, and again, in declaring this, in making, this is not just a dramatic speech that Gandalf is making. There's power in this. Again, I mean, he's, he's doing magic. Um, you know, this is why the, the fire in the, in the Balrog dies. Why did it die? Because Gandalf told it to. The dark flame, fire shall not avail you, flame of Udun. <sighs> you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and it goes out. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yes, Sarah, as you say, he wasn't high noonish enough, and he knows he's not high noonish enough. Um, when, you know, a Balrog muttered Gandalf, now I understand. He faltered and leaned heavily on his staff. What an evil fortune, and I am already weary. Balrog doesn't know what, what, what he is. And yeah, and he knows this is not going to be... Okay, well, I should let you guys go. Um, uh, I have uh, kept you responsibly longer, even than usual. Uh, but uh, thanks for joining me again tonight. Our focus for class, for our last class, which is very soon, just tomorrow night, um, is going to be primarily on Lothlorien and Galadriel. Um, we'll spend the vast majority of our time looking at that and uh, prepare to talk about some more poetry uh, as we look at Galadriel. So, uh, yeah, same time tomorrow, um, uh, same time tomorrow as today, and as has been usual. So, uh, thanks, everybody. Let's see. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Good night.